If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I think I have the gospel picked out as soon as we are done with Easter, uh, which is not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. Uh, So we have this Sunday, next Sunday, and then Easter Sunday, and then the second Sunday in April, we will dive into a gospel, which I believe is the gospel of Mark. So I believe is that's the one I'm going to do. Man, I am struggling. I am praying and struggling. Uh, and if you if you don't know what I'm talking about, we, we go through books of the Bible, and uh, we finished up Genesis uh, in December, and here we are in March, and we are still trying to find a landing place for the next book. Okay. This morning, what I want to talk about, I want to talk about this this week, a little bit next week, and then Easter. Um, I want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about the simplicity of the gospel, which is simple on one hand, and the depths of the gospel, which are fathomless and deep and filled to overflowing with good things for the people of God, and the gospel message does not terminate and end once you become a Christian. Many people believe, hey, I needed John 3.16, and I needed Romans chapter 3. I needed that when I became a Christian. Now I would much rather hear deep and exciting things uh, that, that, are, that are the meat. Well, we are confused over what actual meat is. Actual meat of the Word of God are the things pertaining to to the gospel and our salvation. So let's define gospel and then let's go in to a couple different texts and uh, we're going to look at a story out of the Old Testament. So if somebody were to ask you, what is the gospel, what would you, what would you say? Do, do, you, do you have a quick and ready answer? Good, good news. Then that is, that is exactly what the word means the good news. Now, if I asked a follow-up question, could you be more specific about what the good news is? The the simple answer is, man is a rebellious sinner. He is born a sinner, and he is born a sinner because Adam sinned. Romans 5 says, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death and sin spread to all men. So Adam, acting as our federal head, that's the theological word, he is the head of the human race. All humans sprung from Adam, and they sprung out in sin. The reason that we did is he sinned. The whole world has been condemned under sin. But not just that, because a lot of people say, that's not fair. It's not fair. The problem is that every person who has uttered those words has committed sins in the ongoing rebellion that they inherited from Adam. Every single human being who has ever lived has committed sin. They are born into sin, we are all born into it, and we commit it. And we like it. I heard a preacher once chastising somebody who said, I fell into sin. I just, it's like I was walking one day, I wasn't looking, and I didn't mean to, but I tripped right into this big pile of sin. And he said, No, you didn't. You dug a hole, you lined it with concrete, you had the contractors come over and put the pool liner, you filled up the sin pool, filled with sin, you built a high dive, you climbed to the top of the high dive, and you joyfully dove in. You didn't fall in. You made that happen. And that is actually a better description. Nobody likes what I'm saying because the gospel message is truly, it is offensive because people don't like being told what I'm saying. Nobody likes to hear, you. not only were you born in sin, you like it. You love it. You plan your life around doing more of it. That's, well... The Bible says, Romans chapter 3, if you would go there. Romans 
Paul's Romans is just, if you want more of the gospel, read Romans. In which are hard things to understand, as Peter said. But read Romans. And he tells us, and he's discussing Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, no, Jew or Gentile, you're all under sin. And he says in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Bible says, this is a doctrine called total depravity, that human beings are not seeking God, they don't want God, they don't do good, they don't seek to do good. This always brings up the question, what about people that are donating to hospitals and charity work? What about people who are helping uh, flood victims or fire victims? What about people that are giving their lives in incredible acts of service and they're not Christians? You've probably heard people say that or you've asked that question. The question would be, are they doing these things in a way that glorifies God for God's kingdom, for God's glory? And the answer to that question is almost always, well, it is always, no. The reason I say that is the Bible says that there isn't anyone doing anything righteous even though they may be doing things that appear to be righteous. Later on in the text, he says that righteousness that men do is filthy rags when you compare it to the righteousness of God. God's standard of righteousness is not how many old ladies did you help across the street in your life. God's standard of righteousness is not how many times were you on time for the meeting. God's standard of righteousness is not how much money did you give to the poor. God's standard of righteousness is not how good are you to your fellow man. Even though these are all things that He commands us to do, when we are doing them in and of ourselves, out of a sinful nature that does not seek God, we are doing them unto ourselves, from ourselves, and God is ignored. And what is really the greatest sin that people are committing? It is totally disregarding the King of the universe who gave you life and breath and everything. The reason we are struggling sometimes with the Gospel, or why the world struggles with hearing Christians talk about the Gospel, is we don't get how holy God is. And because we don't see Him for who He is, we think, well, this guy's a good guy and he gave the shirt off of his back and they... They just didn't go to church, but they were really good people. How could they go to hell? They were not good people. They were sinners living for themselves, and they had themselves and maybe, maybe others in mind, and that was all that they had in mind. God, the King of the universe, totally ignored and irrelevant to them. You cannot ignore the Creator of the universe. So, you don't have to go into all those details, perhaps. The Bible simply says there's none righteous, nobody understands, nobody seeks God, we've all become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So we are in trouble. He goes on to say, in verse 21 of Romans 3, well, look at verse 30. For by works of the law, by these good acts, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What Israel demonstrated to the world over their entire history is that there is a perfect law that God gave them, and they could not do it. God demonstrated through Israel that He supplied a perfect law that they could not keep. Have you ever thought of this? Romans 8 says that Jesus did in the likeness of human flesh, it's sinful human flesh, but not being sinful, He did and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law that nobody was ever able to do. If somebody could have done it, it would have been great. Nobody could do it. God gave them a law that they could not do apart from His help. By the works of the law, Paul says in Romans 3.20, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
when God gave that perfect law of righteousness of what you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be living and how you're supposed to be treating your fellow man, nobody could live up to it. And thereby, you are exposed to what you are supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. When you do something inadvertently, it doesn't seem as bad as when you blatantly break the law. Right? Do you look at it different? Let me use something from the banking world where I live. Um, if you've got a contractor who doesn't understand taxes and he makes a mistake, do you think the IRS in an audit looks at that a little different than the CPA who makes the same mistake intentionally? Do you see the difference between? Everybody understands the difference between the two. There's a CPA who knows what he's doing and is intentionally breaking the law because he has the knowledge of the tax code. And then you've got the contractor who had no idea he wasn't allowed to do that. Now, they both broke the law. But one broke the law with some ignorance, still guilty, that's the way it works, and one broke the law knowing that they broke the law. Did it anyway. Paul is saying that the law comes in and brings light, and then in that light, sinful human beings went ahead and broke it anyway. Do you see what I'm getting at? <laughs> and, and that's why Paul has to later, I'm getting too excited because I really like Romans and the logic that just flows right through these. He, he later on explains that the law is still righteous even though it exposes the sinfulness of humanity because they gather the knowledge that is right and then they break it even more. So that's, a, that's another argument. We're not going to be talking about that this morning. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So we're not talking about the law that was given through Moses. Now we're talking about a righteousness apart from that. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So you get these hints and these vibes out of the Old Testament and out of the law of God that is pointing towards this righteousness. And here's what it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So on the one hand, there's no distinction. Every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But for all of those who believe, they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a satisfaction for sin by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. That is a really interesting thing. Did it ever bother anybody that David got away with what he did to Bathsheba? Did you ever read the Old Testament and say, hey, uh, wait a second, Lord, wait a second. Now David cried out in repentance, but he, God, it's like he just passed right over that sin. That doesn't seem right. The cross... Jesus Christ solves the dilemma of the righteousness of God being put on trial. God, you are not just to pass over these sins. You are not just if you do not punish these sins because you gave us this law that said punishment must come for these sins. And, and you, how, how do you do this? Are you just snapping your fingers? This is what Islam says, by the way. Are you just going to snap your fingers and get rid of sin? Is that what you're doing? Because you're God and you're just saying, so yes, you're God, you're allowed to do that, but it doesn't seem now that you are just if you do that. If a judge in Huntington gets a drug dealer who kills some kids and, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? Because I think you're trying hard. I'm going to let you go. Do you think there'd be any outrage? Of course there would be. What would happen to the judge? By what law or standard are you operating by? You're not upholding the law. And, and that, is, that is the accusation in a sense that Paul is addressing in Romans here when he says this was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How is God just? Because he took all of the sin and all of it from the past and the present and the future, he took all of it and placed it on Christ on the cross. And his wrath was poured out in justice on Jesus so that all sin could be dealt with. So that God would be just. He's not a judge that let him go free. He's saying, I put all of the punishment on Christ. Therefore, I am just. And I am the justifier because I am just as God, but I also am the one who declares you righteous if you come in faith to Jesus because of what He did in taking the wrath of God and the justice of God, He can turn around and rightly and justly look at you and say, here is my righteousness that you did not earn and you did not deserve. I got way more detailed this morning than I planned on getting. But this, this is the Gospel. The gospel of your salvation is this. You're born a sinner. You've committed sin. You cannot work your way out of sin. God already did the just requirement of the law through Jesus by Him dying and taking vicariously as a substitute. He took your sin. And He was innocent. So that God could say, I have satisfied my wrath on sin on my Son. So I can look at you, unworthy sinner that you are, because I love you. I am coming as the head of the rescue mission after you. That's what grace is. The undeserved favor of God coming after you, not because you are great, because He is great, and what He did was great, and His love is great. Ephesians 2, in order to satisfy the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Truly unbelievable what I am saying. That the wrath of God must be satisfied and you couldn't satisfy it, you couldn't earn it, you couldn't work, you couldn't do the law. He gave it to a people Israel. They proved generationally they could not do it. Nobody could do it. Jesus did it. And because He did it, I receive God's righteousness. And Paul's saying in Romans 3, the law points at this, it hints at this, it, it looks towards this. He, he's telling us in the, in the Old Testament, this is coming. This is coming. A righteousness you did not earn. The Reformers called it alien righteousness. Not native to you. Given to you. Something new you've never had before. It's God's righteousness purchased on the cross through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That is the gospel. Now, I'm not asking you to explain all of that to a sinner. If somebody asks you what the gospel is, it's very simple. It's to say, Jesus died for the sins of humanity. Humanity has committed sins and violated God's law, starting with Adam, continuing to this day, there is no way to meet God's standard, so God met God's standard through His Son. And because God has met God's standard through His Son, you can be free from your bondage to sin. This message has two, maybe three reactions. Reaction number one, that is the greatest thing I have ever heard. Good news. That is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Reaction number two. How arrogant and how dare you. I am a good person. And Islam and Buddha and all the other religions of the world are as equally valid as yours anyway. And I'm offended that you would even think that you could tell me with absolute certainty that there is none righteous, no, not one. Option number three is, I will consider this matter further. I'm not sure there's any other reactions. 
the mistake of American Christianity has been to try as hard as we can to make the gospel as palatable as we can in a way that makes us look like we are good people and we're not really all that bad and we're not like your grumpy grandfather who preached hellfire and brimstone. I used to say the same thing. I'm beginning to wonder if hellfire and brimstone isn't all that bad to be preached. Because Jesus sure did preach it. Jesus used words like, their worm dieth not. So, I'm not going to become a hellfire and brimstone preacher where every Sunday you hear hellfire and brimstone. What, what you should be hearing, though, is um, there is good news in the gospel, but it's good news because you found out that, that you're going to go to hell if you don't hear it. Ray Comfort, anybody heard of Ray Comfort? Way of the Master, it's a great evangelistic tool. He said, if you give somebody on an airplane a parachute and tell them that this parachute is going to make your life better, more comfortable, your flight is going to be more enjoyable if you will wear this parachute, and they say, okay, I want something, I would like my flight to be more enjoyable, and they put on the big bulky parachute and they're sitting forward like this in the airplane, and other people are making fun of them and laughing, because they're wearing this big bulky parachute, they're going to take the parachute off, hand it back and say, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. This did not make my flight better. It made me uncomfortable, and it made people make fun of me. If you change the story to the truth, which is, hey, guess what? This airplane's going to crash in two hours. It's going to hit the side of a mountain, and your only hope is this parachute, and we're going to jump off before it crashes. Do you think they care if they're facing forward, and people are making fun of them at that point on the airplane? The answer is no, because the purpose of the parachute is to save them from the fiery crash. I thought that was the best example I've ever heard about the reason why preaching over the last 50 years has been so weak and anemic. And I'm not claiming that I'm any better. I was and have been weak and anemic, and pray to God I'm not weak and anemic in the way that I'm presenting the gospel. Because people need to know that there is death imminent. Nobody escapes it. Nobody gets around it. And according to these verses, nobody gets some kind of, well, he was a good guy type of judgment from God. Nobody gets that because ain't nobody good, according to Romans 3. The only good person who has ever suffered is Jesus. I love when R.C. Sproul said, when people ask him, why do good things happen to bad people? He says, Good things or bad things don't happen to good people. There aren't any good people. The only time a bad thing happened to a good person was once, and that was for the salvation of everybody's sin. Jesus. Okay. The gospel is the good news. Scooch back to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Verse 16. Paul says, the very beginning of the letter, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is telling the Romans from the get-go, and then he really begins explaining the, these verses throughout the rest of uh, the next 8, 9 chapters, 10, 11 chapters. He is explaining to them that the gospel itself, the good news, is the power of God for salvation. Romans chapter 10, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by... The Word of God. What is that specifically in reference to? I always grew up and heard it was so you could confess enough times and if you confessed it enough times in faith, something would happen. That is not what it means. It's not even close to what it means. It's not even in the zip code of the context of what it means. The context of what it means is the Gospel message goes forth. People hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They receive faith from somewhere. The Holy Spirit, through the power of the Gospel message, and they believe and they become Christians. The way that the gospel works 
is that it's proclaimed by people and the Holy Spirit does work on their heart. I've said this many times. I will say it again. I would have done it differently. I, I would have just sent out an army of 25-foot angels with flaming eyeballs and lightsabers, just posted them in major cities with voices that could be heard for 100 miles each, and just send them to every country speaking the native language and have them tell the world everything I just told you. That's the way I would have done it. Can you imagine that? There wouldn't be anybody not believing. This is not the way God has done it. God is using you to be the proclaimer of the gospel. In fact, in Romans 10 it says, how can they hear unless somebody preaches? Let me give another little sacred cow. I've said this several times, but I, I need to keep saying these little sacred cow killing things. Um, there was this really famous little blurb that people started using, and it felt good, and it sounded good, and it sounds clever, it's perfect. It's just one little line. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. Of course, it's not in the Bible. It's actually antithetical to what the Scripture says. To preach the gospel, words have to be used. <laughs> words have to be used. What, what, what that little saying is really saying is, I know you're shy, and I know you don't want anybody to think you're a weirdo, and I know nobody wants to have anybody look at anybody, um, anything other than just a sweet, kind soul. So what we want you to do is just live a sweet, kind life, and that will preach the gospel. No, it won't. What will preach the gospel is living a godly, sweet, kind life with words that tell people why I'm living a sweet and kind life. I'm not saying that that statement, that statement is half true. Preach the gospel at all times with the way that you live. I do believe that's true. Peter tells us that our conduct amongst outsiders has to be good so that they will not revile you and call you a hypocrite. So yes, our life is important the way that we live, but the words coming out of our mouth are the way the gospel is communicated. this point in the sermon, everybody goes, oh no, I know where he's headed now. That's good. I hope so. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's one of my favorite verses about what I'm describing. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who is at work. You and I are not the people who save others. We just have a message that saves. Look at what Paul says. He's chastising the church at Corinth because they started doing what we all do. Verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Well, yeah, I got saved through the ministry of Paul. Oh, yeah, well, Apollos is better. Why do we do this? Because there is none good, no, not one. Now, if you're arguing about Michael Jordan and LeBron James, those are clear. There's clear facts and defined answers there. True, I mean they're clear. They're, they're, but that's not what they're doing. They're creating this sense of division that's unnecessary. Well, I I came into the gospel message through Paul. Oh yeah, well I came in through Apollos. He's better. That's the nature of human human beings. It's the nature politically. It's the nature in every aspect of our life. We like tribes, and we like to identify with those tribes. That's why I said two weeks ago 
that there is no place for tribalism within the body of Christ. There is no place for racism or bigotry of any kind because we are one in Christ. We come from these tribes. We bring the uniqueness of wherever we're coming from, but we are one in Christ, and that's the baseline by which we judge everybody. We don't bring in some fancy new sociology of critical race theory or any other thing that is super popular and try to make sense of the world. We make sense of the world through Jesus and His commonality with us and recognize that we are fellow sinners saved by the same grace and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But here is an example of a church doing the exact opposite. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and he says you're acting like a mere human. What then is Apollos? Verse 5, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. So I planted, that was my assignment. Apollos watered what I planted, that was his assignment. But God gave the growth. This is, to me, an echo of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the message, is the power of God unto salvation. God's the one that gives the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're in the same body with the same true ultimate goal that is the preaching of the gospel and God is responsible for the growth. And he goes on to say, each one will receive his wages according to his labors for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. There's a whole, I'm not going to go into all of that. Just simply to say and to point out for us this morning that the gospel is a message for the world to hear and the hearing of the message is where the power of God is because God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one at work. He may be at work right now in a heart in this room or online or three months from now somebody accidentally clicks on this link in Facebook and accidentally gets this far into the sermon and hears the gospel, and you find out it is not accidental. God led them there, and God worked on them and got them into that spot. Frequently, we can look back with hindsight and say, that looks like something God did in my life. I was not aware of it while it was happening. I was not aware of it before it happened. But only in hindsight do I look back and say, oh my goodness, God, God brought me there. But I had no clue. I had no Holy Ghost goosebumps whatsoever, and yet there is God at work. There are frequently, you, you don't know that God is doing what He's doing. He sets people up to hear the message. And He empowers that message. He, through His grace, brings faith into hearts that hear. Totally we are totally dependent on God. And yet, God saying these weird words to us as Christians, you have a job planting and watering. Planting and watering. You are not responsible for people getting saved. That is God's responsibility. You are responsible to tell people about salvation. We are all called to preach the gospel. And that just means proclaim it. It doesn't mean you have to have a degree. It doesn't mean you have to be a genius. It doesn't mean you have to have answers like, what about the dinosaurs? It doesn't mean you have to know everything. It simply means that you are God's fellow workers. He's working through you. Again, I would have used 25-foot angels. But he said... I'm going to use Amanda, who is nowhere close to 25 feet tall. I'm going to use broken, messed up people that I saved. And their broken, messed up life, but saved 
is going to be part of what I use to demonstrate my goodness, my glory, my forgiveness, my holiness. I'm going to demonstrate to the world through you this message of the gospel of salvation. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. It's not that God needs you to be better than you are. He's working in your life too. If you are a believer, God is at work. You cannot fall for the trap that says, I'm not where I should be. How many Christians have heard those words go through your brain at some point? I'm going to raise my hand. I feel that way all the time. I feel that way all the time. The level of guilt that I have that I'm not good enough as a pastor, I don't study enough, I don't pray enough, I don't talk to you enough, I don't do enough, I don't... That, that it never goes away, just so you know. And I know you all deal with it in your whatever whatever you're doing. Every one of us deals with this sense that we don't measure up. And the thing that really has brought me more and more freedom in this weird way caused me to do more and more for God is finding out that I don't measure up. That's correct. Satan, you are correct. I do not measure up at all. I am a recipient of the grace of God and because of that, I can freely be what God needs me to be instead of me trying to prove to God that I ran enough spiritual miles today on the spiritual treadmill that leads nowhere. Guilt, isn't, guilt is the devil's work in the minds and the hearts of Christians to keep you paralyzed from sharing the gospel with your cubicle dweller next door, if you have a cubicle or your coworker, or your neighbor, the sun is out, you're going to start seeing your neighbors more and more, they're right outside, or your neighbors on Facebook. Maybe we should stop posting about stupid things and maybe think about the fact that we are God's fellow workers to share the gospel. Okay. Let's look at one story in the Old Testament. I know, listen, a lot of verses, a lot of thinking. I told you guys at the beginning of the year, we got to snap out of the easy stuff and say, let's, let's be thinking biblical Christians, right? That's what we talked about. Everybody's still reading through the Bible, right? Got to read through the Bible. So I was reading through the Bible, and I came across a story I've heard a million times. It's in Joshua chapter 2. Love how Joshua starts. It's awesome. Joshua's taking the reins from Moses. And, they're, and one of my favorite stories growing up was the Battle of Jericho. Just totally one of those unique, weird, marching around, blowing trumpets. All this crazy... I mean, God's doing all kinds of crazy stuff in, uh, in Israel. And they, and they still didn't believe. <laughs> Joshua chapter 2. Something really stuck out to me and it pertains to this gospel preaching we're talking about. Joshua sent two spies into Jericho because they're going to destroy it. They come across a prostitute. They stay at her house. Don't You shouldn't take that to mean that they were there because she was a prostitute. It was probably something like an inn and like a halfway, or not a halfway house, but a but like a, a place where people could rent rooms. And she, here she is, a prostitute. She knows who they are. She knows where they're coming from. And Listen to the way this is described. She puts them up on the roof and hides them in the flax uh, stalks. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. What did she just say? There's a promise in Genesis, remember? I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Well, Jericho is in that land of Canaan. Jericho's not supposed to be there. God's people are supposed to be there. Here she is, one of those people from Jericho, from the heathens, and she says what God's promised. She says, I know this is supposed to be yours. 
God's given you the land, and the, that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Chronologically, how long ago was that? 40 years ago. Rahab says it like it was last week. We've heard what God did in Israel when He delivered you out of Egypt. We heard about it. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. That was about a month or so ago. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. What does this have to do with the gospel? Rahab, you find out in chapter 6, is the only one and her family that survived the destruction of Jericho. She's the only one, her and her family. Because she heard the message of God's deliverance of the people of God in Israel and believed it. So much so that when you go to the book of Matthew and read the genealogy of Jesus, guess who shows up in Jesus' genealogy? Rahab the prostitute. There are five women that God makes sure He mentions and they're not necessarily banners of virtue or integrity or anything other than faith. Tamar demonstrated that. Rahab demonstrates that. She heard about God's deliverance from 40 years ago and believes. The encouragement I want you to take from that is you do not know how important your testimony, your story of deliverance from sin to the saving grace of God, you don't know how important that is and you don't know who it will affect or when it will affect them. You have no idea. Because you are not in charge of affecting the people. You are in charge of letting the people know. The prisoners are listening to fellow prisoners of sin and how they have been rescued. Paul and Silas were in jail. It says they were singing songs unto God and the prisoners were listening. The prisoners of this world are listening to us. And God can use a story that their grandmother told them when they were 10 and they still remember it, and here they are in their 50s, and you come along with something similar that triggers a memory because the Holy Spirit is at work. You don't know what He's doing. The wind blows where it wishes, and nobody knows where it's coming from or where it's going. So as everyone who is born of the Spirit, we, don't have, we are not in charge of God. We are fellow workers. God wants to use us to be laborers in the harvest. So as we get close to Easter, it's not just merely inviting people to church, though that is something you can do. It's finding open doors of opportunity, and you can use the easiest thing you can use is your own story. Can I tell you why I go to church? You could do that. Can I tell you why? This is my story. I just want you to know. Can I take you to lunch? Pastor Steve, that sounds awkward and it sounds intentional. Yes. 
Yes, it is. Can I take you to lunch? Can I take, can, can we, can you come over and have coffee? Can, can, can we talk about why I go to church? Do you, do you see how easy that is? Well, what if they, well, they, okay, full disclosure, there are people who will think less of you. There are people who will think, I didn't know that Dan Emerson was a weirdo. That's what, the, no, that's true. I, I mean, he worked, I mean, he's got this really important job. I had no idea Ugh. that you were going to get that. That, that you need to know that that is what happens to God's fellow workers. But what you also need to know is that God uses all of your testimonies, all of, your, all of our meager attempts to explain the gospel to somebody. I can't tell you how many times I thought, gosh, I screwed that up. Just totally messed that up. They think I, uh, oh my gosh, I just really said that wrong. And then later, somebody come back and tell you, I could not quit thinking about these three words you said. You don't even remember you said those three. You're worried about the perfection and the polish over here, and God doesn't care, doesn't need that. He doesn't need you to be some perfect polished presenter, orator, wearing the right clothes. He doesn't. He just wants you to be a fellow laborer in the cause of the gospel. He is going to accomplish His purpose by His means. You and I are the means that God uses. Now, God can do anything. God can, God can get to people in any way. Knock Paul off of a horse. He can do whatever He wants. He is sovereign. But the primary way the gospel is delivered is through people. So Easter is the most likely time in our culture that somebody would be willing to hear a crazy fanatical Christian share the, share the message. Two weeks from now is Easter. Here's something you can do. You see these little signs over here? Take these, stick them in your yard, put it on Facebook. You can invite people to uh, Easter service, but here's something else you can do. Out of all that, out of whatever it is you do, pray that God would open a door to share the gospel with somebody between now and Easter. Just pray, God, give me an opportunity, and then when the opportunity is there, walk through the door. Pastor Steve, I don't feel equipped. I don't feel... Okay, listen, I know all the excuses and all that stuff. No, I mean, immediately. That, that should tell you something about the war that goes on when it comes to God's people doing what He calls us to do. There is resistance. A lot of the resistance is your own confidence to open your mouth. But if all you can get out is to say, Jesus saved me, I was a sinner, and, and He's working on me, and I'm not perfect, but I just wanted you to know. And that's all you can do. You, you, you should do it. Waiting around to be Charles Spurgeon is just not going to happen for any of us. So, the very last line of my notes is, now do it. Friends, relatives, work associates and neighbors, may remember that, friends, people that are in your life on purpose, where you live, where you work, that's not unintentional. God sovereignly has all of us right where He wants us. And that means the people around you are around a center of light because you have the life of Christ, which is the light of men living in you. Therefore, let your light shine both by the good works that you do and preaching. I'm not talking about getting up on your desk tomorrow and opening up your grandfather's King James Bible and start yelling. That's not what I'm saying. I have a friend that did that. Didn't work very well. But God 
who knows what God did with even that. Find somebody. Paul did pray in Ephesians and Colossians. He said, pray for me that a door would be opened and that I would speak it boldly as I ought to speak, said the guy in prison for speaking it boldly. We need God's help. I'm telling you, you pray a dangerous prayer and say, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel and give me boldness to do it, and he will do that prayer. Okay, let's all stand up. We're going to be dismissed. What I want you to do as I pray, I want you to pray that prayer now. I want you to say, Lord, direct my heart towards the person. You may already have somebody. As I was preaching, God may have already been kind of doing this number to you. I know a guy. I know a lady. I know this person I work with. My neighbor. I don't want to offend him. I don't want to stand in the day of judgment and wonder why didn't I just tell more people that the king of the universe saved me? I know guilt doesn't work, so we're going to ask God for him to fill us with the yearning to see the harvest come in. Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, this, this is a message that we've all probably heard many times in our life if we've been to church. God, I know that guilt doesn't work. I know, I know that determination and motivation, God, it, it's got to come from you. And we are asking, Lord, that you would open doors of opportunity and that you would give us boldness to speak as we ought to speak. God, remove the fear that we don't know what to say and just allow us to use our story of deliverance and the message of hope that is in Jesus, that He died for sinners. God, let us, by Your grace, by Your power, be these fellow workers this week and next week and in our lives that we would be living a life of sharing Christ with the world around us. God, the world's lost, totally lost. The only hope that they have is You. Lord, help us not see ourselves as most important, but others around us, and in particular, those who don't know You. Lord, we give You glory and honor. The wind blows where it wishes, and we trust, Holy Spirit, You are empowering the message as meager and as feeble as it may sound in our mind and on our lips, as awkward as a conversation may turn, Lord, you can do anything. Lord, I'm asking you to help us and to give this church boldness and fire in our gut to serve the living God. Lord, we thank you for it. Do your work here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. Go find somebody to tell about Jesus. We'll see you next week.